0: in our desires, in our inclinations. Lord, we pray that you'd purify us through your word, and we ask that you do it in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 32, and as we approach this passage, I want to try to tell a, a, a sort of story that would that would dram- dramatize what we see in the book of Exodus. So imagine uh, a, a beautiful young damsel in distress, a young lady who's been, who's been kidnapped, and she's been forced into slavery. And she has no way out. She has no way to liberate herself or to deliver herself. But a, a hero comes, a deliverer comes, and he defeats her captors, and he... He frees her from slavery, and he, he takes her into a new and safe place, and when they get there, he pledges himself to her uh, to be her husband, and she accepts the proposal of marriage, and the wedding day arrives, and everyone is excited for the ceremony, and the ceremony happens, and everyone says, I do, and they make their vows, and then on The wedding night, she commits adultery against him with someone who infiltrated the the reception while he was called away. She went and was unfaithful to him. That's essentially what we have in Exodus 32. In, In the story of Exodus, what's happened is the people of Israel were enslaved. They had no way to free themselves. The Lord came and liberated them, sent his servant Moses, and brought Israel out of Egypt. And they get out to Mount Sinai. And as we've seen, they enter into this covenant with the Lord. The Lord comes down on the mountain in Exodus 20. He speaks the Ten Commandments to them. And I would just note that after the book of the covenant in Exodus 21 through 24... We read in Exodus 24, 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And then we read a few verses later in verse 18 that Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days And 40 nights. And and we've been in Exodus 25 through 32, which seems to be what the Lord gave to Moses across those 40 days and 40 nights, the instructions for the tabernacle. And while Moses is on the mountain, after the people have agreed to the terms of the covenant, it's like they've said, I do in the in the wedding ceremony. While Moses is on the mountain, we we find what the people were doing in Exodus chapter 32. As we approach Exodus 32, let me just draw your attention to the last words of Exodus 31, where it says, the Lord gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So the Lord invites Moses up on the mountain in Exodus 24:12 to receive the two tablets. And then after this, the, the instructions for the tabernacle in chapters 25 through 31, the Lord gives him the two tablets and that brings us to chapter 32 where we see what the people have been doing. Exodus 32 verse 1 when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now the way that this narrative is unfolded for us it really seems like there's a three-day sequence in this this narrative as though this is what happens on the first day and then there's going to be a tomorrow. And then there's going to be a next day as we work through the passage. But that, that's the way the story is told. But th- these events probably unfolded over the course of those 40 days that Moses is on the mountain. The, the people seeing that Moses is, is delayed. And then they gather themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And and as we've gone through the instructions for the tabernacle, I've drawn attention to the similarities between the creation account and the instructions for the tabernacle. And then in in the same way that the creation account ends with the Sabbath in Genesis 2, 1 through 4, you get instructions for the Sabbath at the end of Exodus 31. And that puts us in parallel with the events of Genesis 3. And in the same way that the serpent comes to the woman and says, Has God really said... It's almost like the seed of the serpent have come to Aaron and it's like they're saying, did God really say, you shall have no other gods before me? Did God really say, you shall make no cast image? And and in the same way that Adam fails to intervene and address the serpent and say, get out of here snake, you're not talking to this woman anymore, Aaron fails Aaron's reaction at this point should be, no, we don't make other gods. We don't make images. We don't bow down and worship them. There is one living and true God, and we worship him alone. And that's not how Aaron responds. So they say to him, up, make us gods. And then listen to this phrase, who shall go before us? You know, the Lord said back in Exodus 23, verse 20, I I will send my angel who will go before you. So the Lord has promised to do for them what they want these gods to do for them. Later in Israel's history, they're going to call for a king. They want King Saul, 1 Samuel 8 to go before them and fight their battles. And the Lord says to Samuel on that occasion, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. And the same thing is happening here. They they are rejecting the Lord from being king over them. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, note the acknowledgement here that Moses brought them up out of Egypt. They're going to contradict that in just a moment. They say here, we do not know what has become of him. And and again, I would urge you to note Aaron's failure. Aaron has every opportunity here to, to say something like this to the people. Remember, I mean, he doesn't have chapter and verse, right? Book name and chapter. But he could say, just a few days ago, I was about to say, remember what happened in Exodus 20, just a few days ago. God came down in fire on the mountaintop. Do you remember his first words? I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Remember that? Remember how we all said, everything that he says, we'll do it. And there's no no objection from Aaron, nor does he say, as for this Moses, we don't know. We know what's happened to Moses. He's up on the mountain with God. Let's wait. He'll come back. No, there's no no reasoning with the people, there's no reminding them what's going on. Verse 2 Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Now, there is so much irony here because back in Exodus 25, at the beginning of the, of the instructions for the tabernacle, which, which Moses is up on the mountain receiving as these events happen down at the foot of the mountain, the Lord says to Moses, take a contribution from the people. And then with that contribution of the gold and the silver and the bronze and all the other things, they're going to build the tabernacle which God is going to inhabit among them. And instead, they're doing a sort of knockoff, cheap imitation of the real thing by constructing this idol. Verse 4, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Um, There's a... a, uh, uh, a word used here that's translated calf by the ESV that could also refer to a young bull, a bull that's approximately three years old. So you may have noticed in Psalm 106 that they actually refer to an, an, an image of an ox that eats grass and, and so whatever this animal was, it was a, a cow-like or ox-like animal that they've, that they've constructed. And then notice how they just said in verse one, this man, Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And now they say of the golden calf in verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So this is, this is exactly what Psalm 106 and Romans 1 talk about. They exchange the glory of God for an image made to look like an animal. And they attribute what God has done for them to this image that they have made. It's a lie. It is false. It is fruitless. It's worthless. As we're going to see, this this image cannot protect itself. Moses is going to burn this thing with fire and then grind it up into powder. And the cat, the bull, calf, whatever it is, it can do nothing to defend itself against Moses' aggression against it. And, and there's a, there's a, a wicked and, and lazy theological failure here. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this... He built an altar before it. You remember in the instructions for the tabernacle, we've gotten instructions for altars. So, and, and we've seen Abraham built altars. There's nothing wrong with an altar, but what's wrong is they've broken the first commandment. No other gods before me. He built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow, so there's our first indication that these events seem to be like day one. And now day two, tomorrow, shall be a feast to Yahweh. You see, the, you see the theological failure. They want to engage in a self-contradictory, syncretistic mishmash of the culture and, and true religion. And, and it's, all, it's all heinous idolatry in the eyes of God. It's faithlessness. It, it's a, it's a failure of, of their theological understanding. It's a failure of their moral courage. It's a failure of faith. As for this man Moses, we do not know what has become of him. Well, trust and wait, and he'll come back. Verse six. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play." Uh, The word translated here when it says they rose up to play is the same term that is used when uh, we read back in the book of Genesis of Isaac, um, um, I, I believe the ESV uses the word fondling, his wife. So there's probably a connotation of sexual immorality here. And, and what you see is that the breaking of the first half of the Ten Commandments, no other gods before me, leads to the breaking of the second half of the Ten Commandments, no adultery. Those two things go together. Idolatry and sexual immorality always go to, together in the Bible. And, and that leads me to say this. What would have kept the people from engaging in this idolatry? Or what would have enabled Aaron... To respond as he should have responded. Yahweh alone brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And Moses is on the mountain and he's going to come back. And no idol brought us out of Egypt. Moses did. By the Lord's power. He, what, what would have enabled Aaron to be clear theologically, to be morally courageous, and to be strong in faith? Well, I think he would have he, he needed to be doing two things. And, and they're two related things. Aaron would have needed to be communing with God through the word of God. That is to say, Aaron doesn't have a Bible yet. But if Aaron had been the kind of person who, when he wakes up in the morning, he says, i got to start thinking about what I, I heard the Lord say out of the midst of the fire on the mountain. And he rehearses the Ten Commandments. And then he begins to to think on the stories that he probably knew about the book of Genesis and, and everything that had happened up to this point and all the promises that God has made that we've, that, we've, that we've been dwelling on as we've worked through these passages. Had Aaron been meditating on the scriptures, had he been thereby walking with God, I think he would have been equipped to fight against idolatry. I think he would have been equipped to reason with the folly of the people. So I want to to suggest to you that only communion with God through meditation on his word renews the mind and heart and delivers us from the temptation to idolatry. We are this kind of people. We are the kind of people who at Mount Sinai would say to Aaron make us gods who will go to before us. We don't know what's become. We are the kind of people who would commit adultery on the wedding night. We are that kind of, because we're sinners. We are sinners and 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 sin dwells in us, in our mortal flesh. And the only way to stave that off is through the transformation that comes from beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the only way that we get there is is through the renewing of our minds. And and. And the the, the resulting transformation that comes from meditating on the scriptures and walking with God. That's our only hope against idolatry. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down. And then notice how the Lord distances himself from the people. He says, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. That, That keeps coming up here. Verse one: This man Moses, the man, Mo, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Verse four: These are your gods, O Israel, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Now the Lord says to Moses, Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Uh, the term that's used here is the same term used in Genesis six, eleven, and twelve, where the Lord saw that all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. And in response to that, he, he, he blots out the people. He, he, he brings the flood, and it, it wipes them off the land. The same language is going to be used later in this chapter when Moses says in verse 32, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book. It's as though later in the chapter Moses is going to say, I know that the people corrupted themselves here just like they did at the flood, I know that after the flood, you blotted out the people. Blot me out in their place. The Lord says to Moses in verse 7, Your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Verse 8, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. At most, it's been 39 days. At most. Because Moses was with them. He went up on the mountain. and, And now... In the course of that forty days, they've been making this golden calf. In the middle of verse 8, they have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel. And then here it is again, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I think the reason this phrase is repeated over and over again is to bring out the way that the Lord, and and this is a mystery. Because, because uh, on the one hand, we know that God does not change. He says in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that the, the reason this, this bringing them up out of the land of Egypt is being repeated is because this is personally offensive to the Lord. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is who he is. This is what he did. And they're attributing his work to this lifeless piece of metal that they have shaped. Verse 9 of Exodus 32, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And I think the image there is intentional. Because this this language of of something being stiff-necked is language that that you associate with like a stiff-necked mule or a stiff-necked ox or bull or calf. So the people are worshiping this animal and it's like the Lord is saying they've become like what they're worshiping. They're they're stiff-necked like that thing they're worshiping, which is the opposite of worshiping him and growing in godliness. I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, at, at this point, Moses is going to begin to intercede with the Lord. So, so at the beginning of the passage, Moses is up on the mountain, and he sent down from the the mountain, verse 7, go down, and when he goes down, uh, which hasn't happened yet because he's going to engage in this conversation with the Lord, when he goes down, he's going to find out what the people have been doing. They've been making this golden calf. Before he goes down, Moses is going to intercede with the Lord on behalf of the people, and we see his intercession here in verse 11, but before we start reading it, let me contrast what Moses does here with what you remember the character of Eli is going to do in, in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli is serving as priest and a man of God comes to Eli and says to him, your sons are wicked and they, are, they, they have reached the point where I am going to destroy them. And Eli's response to that proclamation is not like Moses' response. Eli's response is, he is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And, And I think that the author of Samuel wants to contrast Eli with Moses negatively. Because Moses has just been told, Moses, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. And then the Lord even uses language from Genesis 12 too. The Lord told Abraham... In Genesis 12, 2, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And there in verse 10, the Lord says to Moses that I may make a great nation of you. It's very similar uh, phrasing. Moses doesn't say, you're the Lord. Do whatever is good in your sight. No, Moses is going to appeal to the Lord. And notice how Moses appeals. First, he says in verse 11, Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? You notice Moses appeals to what God has previously said. The Lord, back in Exodus 6, told the people, You will be my people, I will be your God. And then that goes all the way back to Genesis 17, where the Lord has said to Abraham, You will be my people, I will be your God. So the, Moses is appealing to what God himself has said. Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? Moses is not having any of this distancing between the Lord and his people. No, no, Lord. These are not my people. They're your people. And you're the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. So Moses is appealing to God's own words with great power and a mighty hand. Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent? Did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Here, Moses is appealing to the Lord's concern for his reputation in Egypt, which the Lord himself has established in Moses' mind he is concerned about. You remember all those places from, from Exodus Three through Exodus 14 where the Lord repeatedly says they will know that I am Yahweh. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. The Lord has professed his desire for the Egyptians to know who he is and that's what Moses is appealing to. He, he says, Lord, I know you're concerned about your own reputation in Egypt. Don't do this. Look at what he says there in verse 12, at the end of the verse, turn from your burning anger. What's remarkable about this is that this word that's translated turn is elsewhere in the Old Testament translated repent. Can you imagine Moses telling the Lord to repent? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And and this word that's translated relent is, is sometimes uh, used in, in phrases that get translated things like, he changed his mind. So we'll come back to these concepts of the Lord turning and relenting. Let's continue with Moses' appeal. He has first appealed to what God said of himself with relationship to the people You're my people, I'm your God. You will be to me a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6. Then he second appeals to God's concern for God's reputation among the nations. Thirdly, look at what he says in verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that's Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. Back in Genesis twenty-two sixteen. 16, after Abraham offers up Isaac, the Lord swore by himself to Abraham. The author of Hebrews reference, having no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. You swore by your own self and said to them, and then here's Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and promises that are repeated in Genesis 12, 7, and 13, 15, and 15, 6, and 7, all through the book of Genesis. I will multiply your seed, your offspring, as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So what's Moses doing now? He's appealing to God's promises. He's saying to the Lord, you said they're your people. And you said you're concerned about your reputation in Egypt. And you made these promises to these people. Remember the promises that you've made. So what's he doing? He's appealing to God's own concern for God's own character. That's what he's doing. And and I would propose to you that this is exactly what God wanted him to do. Now, I am not suggesting for a moment that this was a sham or a setup. This was a real, genuine interaction that took place between God and Moses. And, and, And... I think that the Lord knew that he had, he had sufficiently worked in Moses' life to bring, about, to bring Moses to a point where Moses' deepest concerns matched God's deepest concerns. But what it took apparently to bring this out of Moses was this interaction that would give Moses an opportunity to articulate God's own character and God's own priorities. Verse 14, the Lord relented, there's that that term that we saw back in verse 12, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster, and the Lord relented, verse 14, from the disaster that he had spoken of, that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, to to help us get our heads around and, and hopefully to think well about what we're seeing here, I want to read to you a few quotations from Herman Bavink because I think that that the things that he says are biblically true and and helpful for us as we think about God. And and really, my hope and prayer is that as I read these statements, you will more and more be amazed at who God is. And you will more and more want to worship God and want to think about God. God. We we are made in the image and likeness of God endowed with remarkable capacities and intelligence. And the best thing that you can do with this enormous intellect that you have been given as a human being, the best thing that you can exercise it upon is the nature of the living God. The triune God who is our maker and our savior. So Bavinck writes this. If God were not immutable which which means if, if God were not uh, changeless. If he wasn't someone who does not change, that's what the word immutable means. He does not change. If he were not immutable, he would not be God. Now, I know we've just read a narrative where it kind of looks like God changes. He relents. But let's just think together here. If God were not immutable, he would not be God. His name is being. And what Bavinck means here is, he said of himself, I am. That's my name. I am who I am. His name is being. And this name is an unalterable name. All that changes ceases to be what it was. But true being belongs to him who does not change. And then a little bit further on, Bavink writes, In him there is no change in time, for he is eternal. And, and you, can, you can think your way through this. If God made the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets, and if we measure time by, let's say, the planet rotating on its axis and going around the sun in its orbit, if God is above and outside that, then he is not subject to the flow of events. He's, he's out. In him there is no change in time, for he is eternal. Nor in location, for he is omnipresent. Nor in essence, for he is pure being. He is pure being. These are things that you could think about for a long time. And I think that if you give yourself to thinking about these things and and you contemplate God, you will not be tempted to worship false gods. Cheap knockoffs. You will see through the counterfeits because you've, you've come face to face with the living God. Bavinck writes a little further on, Neither increase nor diminution is conceivable with respect to God. He cannot change for better or worse. And, and what he's getting at is the way that if God were to change, if he's perfect and he were to change, it would, it would be a change for the worse, right? Or but if he, was, if he was worse and he got better, well, then that would imply that he wasn't. So this is impossible. God, God is unchangeable. He's immutable. And then, then he writes this. Those who predicate any change whatsoever of God, whether whether with respect to his essence, knowledge, or will, diminish all his attributes. And then he names all the attributes of God that would be diminished if God were to change. Independence, simplicity, eternity, omniscience, and omnipotence. This robs God of his divine nature and religion of its firm foundation and assured comfort. And you might say to me, well, what about this passage? If if suggesting that God is going to change robs him of his divine nature, what about this narrative which looks like he was going to do one thing and then he relented or perhaps changed his mind and did not do that thing? Well, Bob Inc. writes this, and I think that these concepts are helpful and important for us to wrestle with because really this, is, this, is, this brings us right up to the mystery of who God is. Uh, he, he says of himself, Malachi 3.6, I the Lord do not change. And then we've got passages like the one we're working through right here. And Bob Inc. writes, While immutable in himself, he nevertheless, as it were, lives the life of his creatures, and participates in all their changing states. In other words, he really engages in relationship with us. I can't explain that to you. He goes on, Scripture necessarily speaks of God in anthropomorphic language. In other words, the Bible talks about God in human terms that we can understand. Yet, however anthropomorphic its language... It at the same time prohibits us from positing any change in God himself. We can't say that God changes because he is who he is. So my my point of application for you in response to Moses' intercession is learn Moses' perspective. Embrace Moses' understanding of God's character. God has pledged himself to his people, which includes us now, and and God is concerned for his reputation among the nations, and God is concerned to keep his promises, so you should pray as Moses prays. Prayer is not irrelevant. God is immutable, God is omnipotent, God is sovereign, God is God, and prayer is significant. God has ordained the ends of all things and the means to those ends. We continue in verses 15 through 24. And, and here we're on this second day as the narrative unfolds. Verse 5, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And then verse 6, they rose up early on the next day. And now it, it seems on that day Moses is going to come down from the mountain. Verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. The tablets probably contain the Ten Commandments. We don't know. There are different proposals as to how the writing was. Some propose that on one side, you had the first set of commandments that deal with your relationship with God, and on the other other side, you had the other set of commandments Uh, Commandments that deal with your relationship with people. Other people have proposed that you have all ten on both sides, like a dual witness, you know, two witnesses, everything established by two witnesses. Whatever the case, the tablets likely contain the, the ten commandments written with the very, inscribed on the stone with God's own finger. And they symbolize the covenant. Verse 17: When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. I remember when I was a, a kid, I asked the music man, minister of our church. I said to him, is it OK to listen to rock and roll music? And he took me to this passage. And he said, you know, when I, when I listen to, to some kinds of music, it sounds like war. And it, and it doesn't sound like praise lifted up to the living God. I'm not against all secular music. <laughs> um, verse 18. He said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. What has happened to the tablets is what has happened to the covenant. They broke the first commandment, no other gods, they broke the commandment about adultery. So they broke the second half of the commandment. And now that is symbolically depicted as Moses shatters these tablets. So their covenant with God is, is broken. And the idol is still worthless. Verse 20. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So I, th- I think the, the upshot of this is that uh, the calf, it, it's, it's not powerful. It, it won't hear their prayers. It, it, it cannot defend itself. It cannot give them manna from heaven and water from the rock as the Lord has done. It cannot speak instructions to them as the Lord has done. And it certainly cannot go before them and lead them to a land of promise as the Lord has promised to do. And the things that tempt us today can't do for us what the Lord can do for us either. The the things that appeal to us today, whether it be uh, desire for money or desire for influence, power, or desire for pleasure, sexual gratification, or whatever form that might take, those idolatrous appeals to our flesh, they cannot satisfy us any more than this calf could have satisfied Israel. You will only be satisfied by worshiping and knowing the true and living God. And the only way to do that is to think on his promises and to commune with him thereby, to walk with him. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, this is almost like Genesis 3, Adam, where are you? Moses said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And you remember how, how Adam responded? It's like the Lord is giving him an opportunity. Adam, would you like to confess your sin and, and see if I'm a merciful God? And Adam says, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid and I hid myself because I was naked. And, and the Lord keeps asking questions. And that's, that's kind of like this dialogue here. Aaron said, Ar- Aaron's not ready to say, total failure of nerve on my part. Total failure of logic, total failure of faith. I just blew it. I, I, I failed. I sinned. There, there, there's ultimately no explanation for it because it's irrational and it's evil what I did. And I repent. That's what Aaron needs to say. Aaron said, Don't be mad, Moses. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. All this is irrelevant, Aaron. This does not help the situation. For they said to me, and now here in verse 23, Aaron's going to repeat the words of verse 1. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And before I read on, let me just remind you what verse 4 says. It says of Aaron, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And here he says, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. This is a total failure to take responsibility for what he did. There is no repentance here on Aaron's part. This is why Moses has to say in Deuteronomy 9, the Lord was angry with Aaron and I had to intercede for him. When, when we get caught in our sin, how we respond indicates where our hearts are. If we've got regenerate hearts, we'll be ready to say, I was wrong. I sinned. The only thing for me to do is repent of that sin, Stop, which means stop doing it, and start doing the righteous thing that, that I should have been doing. That's what repentance is. If we respond like Aaron, it's not a good indicator about where where our hearts are. In verses 25 through 29, we see that the Lord is a just God. He is a righteous God. And, And when there are sins, there must be punishments. Justice will be upheld. The Lord will have justice, verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. They have become a laughingstock among the nations. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? That's the issue. Who is on the Lord's side? I know that there are going to be temptations to compromise increasingly I think in our culture I I shouldn't say I know because who knows things could change tomorrow but probably in our culture there will be increasing pressure for us to get on board with the celebration that everybody's referring to as pride month a celebration that Romans 1 tells us is an outworking of the righteous wrath of God as as people are given over to their sin and the question that's gonna confront us again and again is who is on the Lord's side that's the issue Are you on the Lord's side or are you on the side of the seed of the serpent who are in rebellion against him celebrating their pride? That's the issue. And that's the way you have to frame the issue if you want clarity on on where you need to stand in this cultural moment. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me, Moses said. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now, I don't know how this was worked out, but I suspect that it went something like, are you ready to repent of this idolatry and get on board with us, or are you going to continue in idolatry and sexual immorality? And those who refused to repent, I think, were the ones who were purged from the camp by the the death penalty. Verse 28, the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you, he's speaking to the Levites, have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So their devotion to the Lord, the Levites' devotion to the Lord, their being on his side is just like the zeal of Phinehas that will that we'll read about, if if we were to keep reading into the book of Numbers, we would read of Phineas doing a very similar thing in purging evil from the midst of Israel. And Phineas too received a blessing on that occasion. And that brings us to the end of this chapter, which I think is just a a fascinating, prefiguring type of what the Lord Jesus would do. We saw that on day one, in verses 1 through five or wherever you want to divide the text up, six, the people plot the building of this calf. And then on day two, uh, verses five and six, tomorrow and then the next day, day two, they hold a feast supposedly to Yahweh, but it's really to their idol. And then Moses comes down the mountain and confronts them. And now verse 30, the next day, which means that on the third day, Moses has come down from the mountain and now he's going to ascend the mountain on the third day and what he's going to try to do is make atonement for the people. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin Now we're, we haven't gotten to the book of Leviticus yet but Moses has already received instructions about the, the, the initial uh, deposit of revelation, and then the, the instructions about the tabernacle, which include instructions about the altar and the sacrifices that we'll make there. So I think Moses has a little bit of an idea about what atonement looks like. And, and from what he says, I think Moses understands what Adam could have done when Eve sinned. Adam's logic, when Eve sinned, could have gone like this. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. She ate of it. I'm not going to eat of it but she ate of it, Lord, kill me in her place. Adam Adam could have responded like that instead of taking the fruit and eating it too. Verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And I already indicated that this is the language of the flood, the Lord blotting out the people or, or wiping out the people at the flood. Same, same term used in Genesis 6 verse 7 when the Lord says what he's gonna do. And, and I think that Moses is saying, kill me and let them live. And I think that because, the Lord's, because of the Lord's response, verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So Moses offers himself in place of the people, and it's as though, I mean, you know, not all of this is here, but it's as though the Lord says to Moses, you're not the one, because you can't die for them. You're not unstained and undefiled. You're not infinite in your being and and able to fully satisfy my justice. You're not the one, Moses. Moses. Verse thirty-four, but now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Just as a side note here, over in First Corinthians chapter ten, verse eight, Paul says that twenty-three thousand people fell on this day, when they on the day when they when they made the calf. Um, you know, Exodus Thirty-two, thirty-five doesn't say twenty thousand people died in that plague, but I think that's probably what Paul is thinking. Paul is thinking you have three thousand from verse twenty-eight, and then um, there's a plague on the people, and he seems to suggest that another twenty thousand fall in the plague. But what 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 we should really fix our minds on here is the way that the bridegroom took the punishment. You know, if, 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 if the bride was adulterous on the wedding night, what is going to make it so that the marriage can go forward? Well, if the bridegroom is ready to do something that will satisfy the requirements of justice and bring about a cleansing purification so that the bride can be what she should be, what she must be, if the marriage is to be possible. And this is what the Lord Jesus has done for us. What Moses does here typifies the way, that, the way that Jesus himself would enact this kind of scenario when they come to arrest him and he steps forward and says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, if you seek me, let these go and take me. Which is exactly what happens. And, and, and that dramatizes the way that He created, he brought about redemption by giving himself. And and one more quote from Herman Bavink about the Lord and his remarkable ability to enter into relationship with people and yet remain who he is. Bavink says, A deep chasm separates God's being from that of all creatures. It is a mark of God's greatness that he can condescend to the level of his creatures, and that, though transcendent, he can dwell eminently in all created beings. Without losing himself, God can give himself. Isn't that beautiful? Without losing himself, God can give himself. And while absolutely maintaining his immutability, he can enter into an infinite number of relations to his creatures. So in response to this, if if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want to call you to to trust in Christ. I want to urge you to look to the Savior and and to call on his name and experience his salvation. To believe that he can save you. that, That though you've been unfaithful, that though you've sinned, Christ is merciful and he is adequately satisfied the requirements of God's justice through his death and resurrection so that you can be saved. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, I want to urge you again to resolutely, steadfastly give yourself to the scriptures that you might know the word of God, that you might commune with God and walk with God, that you might be transformed from one degree of glory to another as you behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would make us disciplined people. Lord, we pray that you would make us resolved in moments like these to be on your side. And then Lord, we pray that you would cause statements like like Proverbs 28 where it says those who keep sorry, those who transgress the law, praise the wicked, but those who keep it strive against them. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us from praising the wicked by indulging in in their idolatries. We pray that you would help us to strive against them by meditating upon the scriptures, by knowing what we're being tempted to do by feeling it as betrayal against you. So Lord, we pray that you would bring our affections and our emotions and our our rational thoughts into line with the truth of the scriptures and cause us to be those who know you. Father, I pray that you would also cause us to be ever more entranced with who you are. Help us to think deeply on how it can be that you never change, how any change in you would necessarily either make you worse or better, neither of which conclusion is tolerable. Lord, make us those who know you, those who are willing to think hard about you. Help us to discipline our minds in these ways. And Lord, we pray that you would cause your word to dwell in us. And that would make it so that we are like trees planted by a stream of water, bearing fruit in season, leaf not withering, prospering in everything that we do for your glory. Lord, we want to be your people. We want to be those who make your name great among the nations. And we want to be those who cling to your promises, believing that you'll keep them. Conform us to who you are, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.